This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Pinky Show, The Young Turks, Mumia Abu-Jamal, The Majority Report, The Progressive, The Rachel Maddow Show, Jim Hightower, NPR, and Democracy Now! with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Rachel Maddow Show. You see this airplane? It's a United States Air Force B-2 stealth bomber. It's one of the main airplanes the United States uses to bomb stuff and people. You want to guess how much one of these things costs? Well, they are $1.5 billion each. Each, okay? Billion, not million. That's an amount of money most people can't even comprehend. I mean, let me put it this way. If you had a good job that paid you $50,000 a year, and you never had to spend any of it, and you could just save all your money all the time, it would still take you 30,000 years to save up the $1.5 billion to buy your very own B-2 bomber. Now, whether or not you think that's crazy, I guess that depends on how important you think it is to be able to bomb people and things on the far side of the planet with impunity. To some people, you can't put a price on such things. Well, let me give you a quick preview of what I'm about to say. We got to get the hell out of Afghanistan. But let, let me tell you why I'm bringing it up today. We have now new interesting WikiLeaks revelations about what Hamid Karzai, the leader of Afghanistan, actually thinks in cables back home. Our ambassador, Carl Eikenberry, apparently talked about uh, what uh, Karzai thought. Karzai, here's the quote. Karzai then returned to a familiar theme, his wish for Afghan-U.S. relations to recover the spirit of 2002 and 04, a period Karzai sees as a golden age in the relationship. Oh, the good old days of George W. Bush and not paying any attention to Afghanistan. Of course, we'd spent a lot less resources back then. And by the way, we let Osama bin Laden escape, which was supposed to be the point in the first place. But apparently for Karzai, that was the golden years. He goes on to talk about how the Americans were greeted. Here's another part of the cables. Quote, he would like for U.S. forces to again to be able to drive their Humvees through villages, greeted warmly by villagers who would shout, Good morning, Sergeant Thompson. Well, here's part of the problem. We, they've already forgotten who Sergeant Thompson is and why he's there. Uh, we had a poll that was amazing. In Helmand and in Kandahar, they asked uh, the folks that live there, Hey, uh, what uh, percentage of you know why the Americans are here? Only 8% only had any idea why the Americans were even there. They just know, hey, we're fighting them because they're here. 92% had no idea that the 9-11 attacks theoretically kind of originated from Afghanistan. Led by Saudis, by the way. So they're fighting us because we're there. They're not like, hey, Sergeant Thompson, how you doing, big guy? They're like, Sergeant Thompson's in my valley. Somebody hand me a gun. Right? So now, when you ask Americans, that's the Afghans, they're not in favor, but when you ask Americans, well, they hate it too. Look at this uh, poll we've got from ABC News, Washington Post. Uh, only 34% say that it's worth fighting, 60% say that it's not worth fighting the war. That's as high as it got during the height of the Iraq war disaster. So how much more evidence do we need? Look, let me ask you guys, if I did this poll, well, where would you rather spend resources? Which country would you rather invest in, Afghanistan or America? My guess is that poll is going to come out, what, 89%, 98%, 128% in favor of America? What are we winning in Afghanistan? Not a damn thing. We got to go. We got to go. Now we're going to wait till at least 2014. Who's in favor of this? You see, the thing is, Afghans aren't in favor of it. Americans aren't in favor of it. The only people that are in favor of it are the people that continue to make money off that war. They're going to make money for another four years and maybe even longer. This is outrageous. We got to get out of there.
Uh, I wish we could find an issue, Jenk, that would get you a little exercised uh, <laughs> somehow. What do, you, what do you think it is? I know you point to the defense contractors, but you've got presumably some well-meaning people in the echelons of power in both parties. Now, the presidents of two parties who have supported what's going to be a 20-year war by the time we're done because 2014 now is when we're doing the handoff but you hear quietly they're still talking about training people and training troops training police all of that may be God's work but it's a hundred thousand troops hundred and fifty billion dollars a year how does it happen that a great power ends up 20 years like this we're like Russia or Genghis Khan right we're getting stuck there like like every, does every great power have to get stuck in Afghanistan it's like a rite of passage well there's a tiny percentage of it is that hubris that all the great empires have I get that right and a lot of it is politics but why is there the politics why do the Republicans say we can never ever leave any war why do the Democrats get scared of that and say all right oh my god I'm gonna stay otherwise I'm gonna seem as weak so those are the consequences but the original cause is always the money look we're spending two billion dollars a week in Afghanistan. Imagine what we could do in America if we spent two billion dollars here. The people who are getting that money is the defense contractors. So they create a political environment in which it becomes untenable and unreasonable to ever leave a war. So yeah. it's, it's funny because I wonder sometimes if, if you're a policymaker who grew up in Canada instead of, not to say Canada's Nirvana, but you grew up in Canada instead of the United States, do you not grow up with this kind of imperial hubris that says, when I achieve a high level, I will try and move the global chess pieces in ways that end up leading, maybe with good intentions, to real folly? It's just the mindset. Well, look, part of it is hubris, no question about that. But the other part of it is that it, although Canada's system might also be imperfect, all their politicians are not deeply bought. Our politicians run their campaigns based on money that they get from lobbyists. That affects everything, including the decision to go and to stay in war. And yet I do think, you've got to empathize, there must be some folks, even some soldiers on the ground, who believe somehow in the, they may be wrong-headed, but it seems too much to say it's all money. That seems a little too... Uh, no, no, they commit to Unicausal, you know? No, no, but wait a minute, wait a minute. They, they commit You're a financial determinist. Right, no, look, they tell the guys on the ground, oh, freedom and stuff, and what we're going to win? What are we going to win? What are we winning? Nobody even knows. Nobody can answer that question, right? But, like, are, do the individual politicians convince themselves? Do the soldiers convince themselves that it's about winning and freedom? I'm sure they do, but the result, but the real... Re uh, motivation behind it is are the people who laid out that strategy to, to get us there and it's costing 125 billion dollars this year alone and somebody's making that money Paul said to Pete you gotta push yourself a little harder Pretend the death from above is a dragon and your feet are on fire But I got a girl in the all the only thing I know to do Is turn up the music and pray she can make it through Because the keys to the kingdom got locked inside the kingdom And the angels fly around and there we can't see them as the U.S. imperial wars slog on in Iraq and Afghanistan, American elite thinkers are envisioning a world where such mistakes as these are not repeated. For some time, such voices were heard in the aftermath of Vietnam, but of course, such notions didn't last. They rarely do in empires, for the urge to acquisition is just too strong. For empires acquire nations, like children acquire toys. Leslie Gelb, President Emeritus of the Council on Foreign Relations and a former editor of the New York Times, recently penned an article in the CFR journal Foreign Affairs that prioritized the power of the purse over the power of arms. In the article, GDP now matters more than force, Gelb argues that the rules that should govern future wars are these. Land wars should be undertaken if and only if the following criteria are met. The threat is unique to the country posing it and clearly a danger to U.S. security. Only land forces can neutralize that threat, and they can do so within a few years and at a reasonable cost. And the local population will fight for itself, fully supporting the effort and understanding from the outset that it will be its own defender. Short of that, 
the United States should stick to aid and diplomacy to combat threats. The wars in Afghanistan and Iraq have a combined tab of almost $3 trillion and counting. Although the overall utility of these wars will be debated forever, the costs to the U.S. economy have been clear and horrendous. Gelb's rules are undoubtedly reflections on the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, but they're meant for wars to come, not the wars in which the U.S. is now ensnared. But it is more. It is an elite statement that reflects war fatigue and perhaps financial fatigue. Being an empire usually means never acknowledging its limits, for it is the very essence of empire to not only accrue power, but to exercise it with blind abandon. What Gelb is really saying is that there must be some breaks on this imperial madness, and he offers some speed bumps. From Death Row, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. Breakneck speed. Tying up your hands because you're landing back on your feet. How would you like to be able to read books and periodicals without the need for tree killing paper, the actual ability to read, or having to pay a giant corporation for the pleasure? I sure would, but I don't think that exists. Two out of three ain't bad, though, because Audible, an Amazon company, is just such a giant corporation that can make these other wishes a reality. By signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best, you'll receive a free audiobook of your choice, yours to keep even if you cancel within the 14-day free trial. That's audiblepodcast.com slash best to take something for nothing from a company who obviously didn't write the copy for this advertisement. We have a, um, as reported in, uh, by WTOP.com, WTOP, I guess a local, uh, or WUSA9, uh, in Virginia. On the phone, Loudoun County lawmaker Gene Sniffa, a Republican representing, uh, Sterling on the Loudoun County Board of Supervisors. Uh, welcome to the program, Mr. Sniffa. Thank you. It's a it's a pleasure to be here on such a dismal occasion. Sadly, but it's still a pleasure. I'm sorry. What um, uh, a dismal occasion? I'm sorry. When 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 you're watching the United States of America go down the toilet in such a fashion as it has, well, certainly over the last twenty years, thirty years since the the hippie movement, uh, and now today becoming a one-sex society. It's just, it's depressing. It's it, The work is, I, is tireless. Excuse I'm me sorry. for one second. I just want to, um, you, you have a very specific issue with the TSA new uh, program uh, using the uh, RAPA-SCAN, uh, and if you don't use the RAPA-SCAN, you are subject to pat-downs, and you have a rather odd uh, perspective on this, if you don't mind my saying. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I've, I've heard people refer to my perspective as odd, and, and I question those people, and I question you, uh, Mr. Cedar. But, uh, yes, I, uh, I have been conducting an ongoing uh, investigative study uh, myself and several, uh, several interns have uh, passed through no fewer than 769 different security operations throughout these United States. So wait, and are you suggesting now, okay, so you've been through 700-some-odd 700, uh, 700 uh, security checkpoints at airports? Pass, bypassing the rapid scan and doing the uh, manual search, that's correct. That's and correct. and, and uh, what was your findings on this? My findings are is that the homosexual agenda in this country has uh, effectively committed a coup d'etat in terms of forwarding their agenda, their ideals, their lifestyle, and their sickness, quite frankly, through this so-called safety security measure. It's a ruse. It's yet another example of how people buck the system and then have and take advantage of 
of young people, old people. I mean, I've already been a victim of this, and and and, and I'm Wait, quite. Could frank, you please I'm explain to my audience why why you think this security system is part of the homosexual agenda? What better opportunity for a person of same sex? to place their hands upon the genitalia, the privates of another person, for a little bit of a thrill. Oh, sure, we're going to keep you safe. At first, I just was shocked that, my goodness, I've been touched in a place that, that my wife barely touches me. And, and I'm thinking, that's odd. I don't even know this gentleman. I, you know, on first appearances, he seems kindly Wait enough. Wait a second. And... Are you suggesting that... that the homosexual agenda was to set up these security things to I'm, I'm, I'm proving it I'm not suggesting it I've proven it on three different occasions just this week I became more aroused during a security check than I've ever been in my life embarrassing yes necessary of course but I I'm not the only one this is happening to young boys this is happening possibly to young girls. Wait a second. If you notice, you're, they, they, go ahead. You're suggesting that because you were sexually aroused that these people, this is part of the gay agenda. If it can happen to me, it can happen to anybody. Understand that I was raised Christian. I volunteered at my church, and I still am involved in the youth group. I run all the campouts. I do all the picnics. I do all the youth-oriented work. From there, I was a member of the Boy Scouts of America. Still am a card-carrying member of the Baden-Powell Council. I am as, as normal as normal can be in these United States. And if I'm being aroused when a person of my own sex begins to fiddle and fondle and faddle my private area, I will tell you what, it can happen to anybody. I'm sickened by it. I'm embarrassed by it. But it's, I, I feel my work is necessary work to stop the homosexual agenda. And these body searches, these manual... Do you know how, how many, many body machines are now technically down? Sorry, our machine isn't working. Come this way. How, how many more of these searches do you intend to engage in? As many as it takes. If I have to go through one every day, I'll do it for the United States of America. I don't mind sacrificing myself like Mr. Rush Limbaugh, like Mr. Ronald Reagan, and Mr. Sean Hannity. I am of the idea that this is a great country, and it could be even greater. But many of us have to say the things we need to say and do the things we need to do. I, I will gladly throw myself on a grenade, so to speak. But in this case, it happens to be the wandering hands of a homosexual. See me, feel me, touch me, feel me. Listening to you, I get the music. Gazing at you, I get the heat following you. I climb the mountain, I get excitement at your feet. When President Obama spoke on Thursday about Afghanistan, it was like being in a Vietnam time warp. This continues to be a very difficult endeavor, Obama said, but we're on track to achieve our goals. Flashback to November 1967. The president took control of the campaign to dramatize progress to the American people, but in ways that grossly exaggerated future military prospects, writes Larry Berman in his book, Lyndon Johnson's War, The Road to Stalemate in Vietnam. Here's Johnson, November 17, 1967. We're making progress. We're pleased with the results we're getting. Here's Obama, December 16th, 2010. We're making considerable gains toward our military objectives. But even when Obama was discussing those military objectives, he was muddled. He said the core goal was not to defeat every last threat to the security of Afghanistan, but rather disrupting, dismantling, and defeating al-Qaeda. Yet al-Qaeda barely exists in Afghanistan, and Obama doesn't need 100,000 U.S. troops there to go after a handful of terrorists. Obama's statements about Afghanistan this week, like Johnson's in 1967, were designed as a PR ploy. But no amount of PR can cover up a quagmire. Even though you know that everybody lies a little bit about everything. 
somehow all the laws of nature have been broken Superhuman forces woken that nobody could ever know but you and me Arab states, uh, especially Bahrain, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia saying For the love of Allah, attack Iran They're telling us to attack Iran While in public they're saying Oh, no, 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 I, U.S., you better not attack Iran, that's crazy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, they're like, come on, come on, attack him, hurry up, what's the matter with you, what's the matter with you? So, Israel's telling us to attack Iran, and the Arabs are telling us to attack Iran. Now, my question is, why do we give a damn? Why should we fight their war for them? We just sold the Saudis $60 billion worth of jets. You want to attack Iran? Have at it, boss. Let's see how you do. Okay? Now, I think that's a terrible idea. I don't want them to do it, but... The only thing worse is for us to attack Iran. Why should we be doing either Israel's bidding or Saudi Arabia's bidding? That's crazy. Now, if you ask Americans, hey, do you think we should attack Iran as a favor to Saudi Arabia? I think that for the first time in history, you will get a poll that is 100% to 0%. Nobody wants to attack Iran to do a favor for Saudi Arabia or Bahrain. Okay, but our politicians seriously consider that. If you turn on Fox News at any point, they're like, oh, yeah, Iran, nukes. What they got out of WikiLeaks was, oh, you see that? Everybody's concerned about Iran's nuclear program. It goes to show you we should attack immediately. Okay, I, I'm not kidding. I, I've seen the reports all day long. People are saying, oh, look, Israelis are saying behind the scenes they, we might have to attack this year. And the Arabs are also concerned. Obviously, we should attack. No, obviously those people's interests don't mesh up with our interests. And I'm not going to send American soldiers to go die because Saudi Arabia wants me to? What kind of mental world do they live in? But now the good news is, we didn't so far. Although we've gotten all this pressure, we have not attacked Iran. So, you got to score one for the Obama administration, and partly at the end of the Bush administration to Bush. Now, Cheney desperately wanted him to attack Iran. So, he ain't getting no credit. He's getting the exact opposite. But Bush resisted that. So, credit where credit is due. And you know how much he loves the Saudis, and he still resisted it. By the way, speaking of the Saudis, we also see from the WikiLeaks uh, that, as with every other piece of evidence we've ever had, the top uh, funders of terrorism in the world all come from Saudi Arabia. It's not the Saudi government, but it is people who are giving to charities in Saudi Arabia. Oh, oops, golly gee, willikers, and the government of Saudi Arabia couldn't do anything about it. Oh, they were trying to track down the money from the charities and stuff, but they just kind of slipped out from beneath their fingers and and their grasp. And, and what can we do? The top funders of terrorism still come from Saudi Arabia. By the way, there was a massive report from the Undersecretary of the Treasury uh, that went to the Senate uh, committees, and, and then the Senate published a report as well uh, in 2007 and 2008 under Bush, saying, yeah, who's hitting our troops in Iraq the most? And who's funding terrorism throughout the world the most? Saudi funders, and we're supposed to attack a country to do them a favor? What kind of sense does that make? That makes no sense unless, of course, you're one of the people who benefits from doing Saudi Arabia's bidding. And who would that be? It would be the oil companies and the defense contractors. They're perfectly happy to do the bidding of the Saudi state. So the question is, should we run the government based on what's in the best interest of the United States people? Or what's in the best interest of our oil companies and our defense contractors? I think that question is obvious to us. Unfortunately, it's almost equally obvious to Washington, except they take the other side. All right, now, you know, as far as other revelations in WikiLeaks, they, they were plentiful. Uh, we're worried about Pakistan's uh, nuclear program. Duh. <laughs> of course we are! And we were trying to sneak some of their uranium out because we were worried that it was going to wind up in terrorist hands. That was the best revelation in WikiLeaks. I was like, oh, thank God, at least somebody's on it. So no problems there, if you ask me. Obviously, in Yemen, it's embarrassing for the government of Yemen because their leader, you can see, says to Petraeus, yeah, yeah, go ahead, bomb whoever the hell you like inside Yemen, and we'll pretend it was us and that we meant it, and that it wasn't you guys. Now, we had a pretty good sense that was happening. Uh, it's a little unfortunate for the leader of Yemen for the rest of the world to find that out. So... Look, and then, of course, the discussion is what should happen uh, to WikiLeaks. They're the press. Uh, you know, I don't think anything should happen to WikiLeaks. Uh, but the guy who leaked all this stuff, man, Private Manning, you know, you can consider him a hero because we're finding out a lot of things that we didn't know before, and it probably 
uh, you know, winds up uh, helping the American people and electorate know more about our policies and what we're actually doing. But at the same time, it is a massive violation of the law. So Manning is probably in a gigantic trouble, and honestly, probably should be. Okay, now you can send the hate mail uh, at Google Groups on the Young Turks. Go to theyoungturks.com and, and send me the email that way. But look, man, I mean, we can't just have anybody putting out all of our state secrets because they think they're doing the right thing. I and look, if I was on the jury, I don't know how I'd come out on it. I would definitely listen to the case with an open mind. If I was the government, I'd come after Manning with a sledgehammer, a legal sledgehammer, okay? <laughs> you know, because these days, the Republicans probably would go with a real sledgehammer, legal, legal sledgehammer. Because, look, this, I mean, some of this stuff really does hurt our, our foreign policy. Some of it is incredibly revelatory and, and interesting to us. And, and, of course, as press, you should share that with because that's your job with the American people and and and, and with the rest of the world but you know that's that that hurts our relationship with Yemen no question about that they're going to be now of course reluctant to to work with us as much as they were before So let's presuppose for a moment that you actually enjoy this show. Now, if that's true, please consider supporting it with a $5 monthly membership. I actually quit my job as a climate activist to pursue this show full-time because this is where I felt like my talents could best be put to use and I could have the biggest impact on the world. But I really need your support to keep going. I produce 10 shows a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule posting shows at least every third day. So if all that is worth 5 bucks a month or as little as $55, a year, a little discount for you, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. WikiLeaks saga has shown us anything. It's that things are seldom what they seem, and allies and truth are almost indistinguishable from adversaries. That's because what a nation says and what a nation does is often two different things. And what a diplomat says? There is one discourse for public consumption. What they say in confidential government cables are another matter. For example, the U.S. has spent tens of billions to stabilize Afghanistan. And for almost a decade, presidents and diplomats have spoken glowingly of Afghan President Hamid Karzai as a force for democracy in the region. Presidents have embraced him and lauded him as a valued ally. In public, that is. Diplomatic cables released by WikiLeaks and some newspapers tell an entirely different tale. They describe Karzai as a man of deep-seated insecurities and a man unable to grasp the basics of statecraft. Other cables describe naked corruption and the power of the heroin cartels in the country. One cable quotes Karzai as saying, I wish I had the Taliban as my soldiers. This cable was sent two years ago. WikiLeaks did what the corporate press couldn't or wouldn't do. They gave the people a true view into state relations, especially in a nation where the U.S. has spent tens of billions of dollars and thousands of lives, not to mention thousands of Afghan lives, in defense of one of the most corrupt governments on earth. WikiLeaks has performed a powerful public service. From death row, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal.
This is something that's sort of gone down the memory hole, uh, but it should not have. A dramatic escalation in the battle for Najaf and the control of Iraq's holiest city today. The battleground, sacred ground, the world's largest cemetery. Fighters from radical cleric Muqtada al-Sadr's Mahdi army are using the cemetery to stage hit-and-run attacks on U.S. troops and Iraqi police. For six weeks, the battles have raged in Iraq's holy cities as Muqtada al-Sadr led his war to drive the U.S.-led coalition out of Iraq. His fiery sermons attracted thousands of young fighters to his Mahdi army and American military commanders vowed to capture or kill him. The target is Muqtada al-Sadr in his militia. We will hunt them down and we will destroy them. Forces loyal to the rogue Shiite cleric Muqtada al-Sadr attacked a police station in Najaf and when American troops moved in to help Iraqis defending the facility, fierce fighting broke out. Al-Sadr's men also fought U.S. forces in Baghdad. Loyalists of radical Shiite cleric Muqtada al-Sadr battled Iraqi security and coalition forces in Najaf, taking down this U.S. helicopter. That is footage from 2004, when the Mahdi army fought as a militant Shiite army in Iraq against both Iraqi forces and against U.S. troops. You remember that? The Mahdi army, right? The Mahdi army were loyal to one of the only men in Iraq who every American at the time learned the name of, Muqtada al-Sadr. When Saddam Hussein was executed, you might recall, when they hanged Saddam Hussein, the executioners in the room chanted Muqtada al-Sadr's name. When the U.S. Marines pulled down the Saddam statue in Baghdad, the Iraqis there chanted Muqtada al-Sadr's name. And then he went on to lead his Mahdi army against the U.S. The Americans helped them pull it down. There was that very awkward moment where at one stage the Americans put an American flag on it. That's right, I remember that. And then they put Over the, the face of the statue. An American yeah. flag that had, had a, new, a, a tie to 9-11. It was a, a flag that had been in New York. What's odd, and the people who were in that square at the time, I, I was listening to them cheer. They weren't cheering the end of America, the end, uh, of, end Saddam, of Saddam, uh, this is freedom, freedom. They were yelling, Aish, Aish, Aish is Sadr. They were cheering Sutter. for Sutter. They were cheering for not Muqtada al-Sadr. Sutter's father. Exactly. So they were cheering, cheering for a. They're giving a Shiite, Shiite sectarian cleric. chant as the statue is being pulled down. See, That's what they were yelling. In the yeah. Circuit. See, that wouldn't have made local radio either. I was reporting <laughs> at the time, but I said, "Look, this is but, just the beginning of something huge." They were not cheering. Ameri Thank you, America, but, democracy. They were cheering for a Shiite cleric. But in America, I mean. We were so, as Americans, we were so eager to have reflected back to us the supposed glory of the war. As they chanted for Muqtada al-Sadr, his father uh, and the son has now inherited the legacy. But one last thing uh, that I want to tell you about this week that happened in this week's news that did not happen in the U.S., but that is hugely important to the U.S. This has sort of gone down the memory hole and it didn't get a lot of attention, but I think it's really important. One thing I got to tell you is that Muqtada al-Sadr is back now. He spent the last three years in Iran, and Iraq has just let him come back, which means that the man who led the religious Mahdi army against U.S. troops and against Iraqi forces is back. It means that the most famous man and maybe the most powerful man in Iraq now is a radical Shiite fundamentalist cleric. It means that the Iraq war, in the end, has had the effect of taking away Iran's biggest enemy right there on its border and making Iraq instead into Iran West, Iran adjacent, Iran's greatest ally in the world. You can send your Farsi thank you cards to George W. Bush. I drank too much last night, got bills to pay. My head just feels in pain. I missed the bus and there'll be hell today. I'm late for work again. Leave on if I'm there, they'll all imply that I might not last the day. And then you call me and it's not so bad, it's not so bad. Are you aware that America has now been at war for nearly a decade? We've been fighting, bleeding, and dying in two hellacious, multi-trillion dollar conflagrations since 2001, and our blood continues to flow with no end in sight. Well, not our blood, not yours and mine. We continue to go about our daily routines, 
Go to work, go to the mall, go out to eat, go golfing, go to church, go on vacation, go dancing and drinking. War? Americans will pay far more attention to the World Series than they will to the ongoing carnage in Afghanistan and Iraq. In a little-noted speech, Pentagon Chief Robert Gates recently pointed out that, quote, for most Americans, the war remains an abstraction, a distant and unpleasant series of news items that do not affect them personally. Service in the military, he bluntly says, has become something for other people to do. He's right. You see, we are not at war. We handed off that awful duty a decade ago to the 2.4 million active and reserve soldiers in the armed services, less than 1% of our nation's people. They and their families are the ones at war, cycled and recycled into debilitating and deadly deployments. We, the people, are not even making the minimal sacrifice of paying for the burden we've so carelessly stacked on their shoulders. Both the Bush regime and the Obamacans, fully backed by both Republican and Democratic Congresses of the past decade, cravenly put Afghanistan and Iraq on the national credit card, piling up trillions of dollars in debt for future generations to cover. This is Jim Hightower saying, The widening disconnect between Americans and America's wars is not only dangerous for our democracy, but it's immoral. It allows politicians and corporate profiteers to sink our national soul in the diabolical depths of perpetual war. I get a brush when I see blood dead bodies on the floor. Casualties of war. Casualties of war. Casualties of war. Casualties of war. The war is over, for now at least Just because they lost, it don't mean it's peace It's a long way home, it's a lot to think about Whole generation left in doubt Innocent families killed in the mist It'll be more dead people after this So I'm glad to be alive and walking Half of my platoon came home in coffin Except the general buried in the storm And bits and pieces, no need to look for them I played it slick and got away with it Picked it up so they would think they did it Now I'm home on reserves and you can bet when they call I'm going eight war Cause it ain't no way I'm going back to war When I don't know who or what I'm fighting for A busy week ahead here in Washington As Chinese President Hu Jintao arrives to town for a state visit And no doubt questions over America's role in the world and China's will be asked. We spoke about it on the program yesterday And we pick up that theme today but with a look back 50 years ago to a speech that still reverberates President Dwight D. Eisenhower's farewell address. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The legacy of the military-industrial complex, that's our cover story today. In a moment, we'll hear how it was received, and later, historian and former Army Colonel Andrew Basevich on whether we've absorbed its lessons. But first, a little background. Eisenhower's speech came after two decades of rapid military industrialization in America, a process that began when nearly three million Americans were encouraged to invest billions in war bonds. You're speaking because your name is on a piece of paper, a war bond. And the enemy listens to you and dies when America speaks. That money, along with the high taxes of the Roosevelt era, fueled a vast military machine. We must increase production facilities for everything needed for the Army and Navy for national defense. An America at war was a prosperous America, and military production had become a cornerstone of the American economy and remained so well after the war ended. But then, in 1957, the process was ratcheted up another notch when Russia launched its Sputnik satellite. You are hearing the actual signals transmitted by the Earth-circling satellite, one of the great scientific feats of the age. Sputnik ended uh, a, an era of normalcy in 1954 through 57, and Eisenhower was trying to apply the brakes to it. That's Dwight Eisenhower's grandson, David Eisenhower. He says it was against this backdrop of an increasingly hostile Cold War when his grandfather issued a warning that night January 17, 1961. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now, this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American... We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. 
David Eisenhower, we now know that he spent weeks and perhaps months on this speech, uh, going mm -hmm. through a variety of drafts. He knew that this speech was going to have an impact. Uh, I think he did know it was going to have an impact. Uh, in fact, it's one of the greatest speeches. There was a poll of rhetoric professors about speeches delivered by Americans in the 20th century. This speech turns up number 18 on that list. Interestingly, mm. it was delivered within 65 hours of another speech on that list, uh, John Kennedy's uh, inaugural of on course. January 20th, 1961. Ask not! What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Uh, one interesting angle on the Eisenhower farewell is to compare and contrast it with the message that John Kennedy delivers. Because on, you, you would argue on that the they're 20th. not entirely; they don't have entirely different messages. My argument is they don't. Now, I do see differences in style. I see differences in emphasis, but um, I would say that the basic topic of both speeches is. One and the same. Uh, Eisenhower's farewell address in the final analysis is about internal threats posed by vested interests to the democratic process. But above all, it is addressed to citizens and about citizenship. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals. David Eisenhower, um, in your book, about your grandfather, Dwight Eisenhower, you write that um, he he developed a, a split personality yeah. <laughs> about this speech, that he would sort of downplay its significance to his old military pals and to business friends, but then he would sort of show a pride in it to others. How do you square that? Well, there's a lot of buzz, and um, people acted as though, again, this was something out of the blue. It was certainly not that. That is something that I've established. And maybe they thought he just sort of, uh, I don't know, had, had a, no, I think there, <laughs> there are actually two questions here. Number one is, is the speech true? And what are your allies and or political opponents likely to make of it? And I think the feeling among Eisenhower's allies is that Eisenhower had said something that in one way or another would uh, undermine the uh, position of uh, many political allies that he'd had. For instance, how does this speech... Uh, relate to the uh, Vietnam War, which is beginning in the 1960s. Has Eisenhower handed anti-war opponents a slogan that they can use to oppose the war? Now, I think that there were misgivings sort of in that vein. Did he speak the truth? That, that's the beauty of Dwight Eisenhower's farewell address. I have immersed myself professionally for many years in the Eisenhower papers. I know how his mind worked. I know what his habits of expression were. This is Dwight Eisenhower mm. in the farewell address, and he speaks the truth. That's David Eisenhower, grandson of Dwight D. Eisenhower and director of the Institute for Public Service at the Annenberg School of Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. His latest book is called Going Home to Glory, a memoir of life with Dwight D. Eisenhower. David Eisenhower, thank you. Thank you. Andrew Basevich, a retired Army colonel and a professor of history at Boston University, says Eisenhower's warning came too late. I think we should view the speech as an admission of failure on the president's part. Hmm an acknowledgment that he was unable to curb tendencies that he had recognized from the very outset of his presidency were problematic. His antidote to the uh, growing military-industrial complex, this term that he coined that night, was a better informed citizenry. But he, he was vague about that. I mean, he didn't specifically say, this is how you combat it. Do you think that was a shortcoming of the speech? I don't. I think in many respects that's the, the piece that we've overlooked and we've missed. Hmm. He believed that if there was an antidote, the antidote would have to come from citizens being knowledgeable and engaged and watchful. Even though you, you would acknowledge that didn't happen. I mean, in no. some ways, uh, what Eisenhower warned, warned about has finally caught up with us. Well, I think so. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons that uh, people didn't pay much attention to the farewell address at the time was in the 1950s, a guns and butter recipe seemingly had worked. We were safe and we were prosperous, so what was not to like? You could build the highways and you could also build the bombers. Exactly right. In the, our present circumstance, we can no longer insist upon having both guns and butter, mm -hmm. and we are compromising the possibility of sustaining genuine prosperity mm. at home. Uh, you write that there were hints of what was to come in this speech 
almost eight years before in a speech he gave to a group of newspaper editors just after Joseph Stalin died. And what, what did he say there that foreshadowed his farewell address? Yeah, this is the speech that uh, historians call his Cross of Iron speech. This former five-star general stated categorically that spending on military power, the purchase of weapons, constituted what he described as theft, theft from people. Every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies in the final sense of his children, a theft. The cost of one modern heavy bomber is this, a modern brick school in more than 30 cities. And I think that Americans weren't interested really in hearing that message at a particular time. But Americans today, I think, uh, were they to return to that speech, would find that it resonates uh, in the circumstances in which we find ourselves today. This is not a way of life at all, in any true sense. Under the cloud of threatening war, it is humanity hanging from a cross of iron. Uh, Andrew Basevich, last year, Defense Secretary Robert Gates proposed about $100 billion in cuts to the defense budget over the next five years. Is he starting to chip away at some of the military-industrial complex? I think not. It's not so much cuts to reduce the overall level of defense spending. It's cuts exacted here in order to transfer that money to another defense account. So how do you, I mean, how would you even begin to try and, and carry out what Eisenhower warned against. I mean, I wonder if it can be done. Well, I'm pessimistic on this as I am on, on most matters uh, because our political institutions demonstrate uh, an unwillingness or an inability to really take on the big uh, questions. And uh, the American people, uh, many of them distracted by all kinds of concerns, like having a job when there's almost 10% unemployment, aren't paying attention. But I think were we to formulate an effective response, it would have to begin by asking the first-order questions. There are assumptions about the prerequisites of U.S. national security, way overdue for re-examination. Ever since the end of World War II, the United States has been committed to the proposition that maintaining a global military presence is essential to our security. And there was a time, I think, in the Eisenhower era military presence abroad was useful. To a considerable degree, that's no longer the case. Maintaining U.S. military forces in, in the so-called greater Middle East doesn't contribute to stability. It contributes to instability. It increases anti-Americanism. So why persist in the belief that maintaining all these U.S. forces scattered around the globe are necessary and ineffective? If you can challenge that assumption, then I think it becomes possible to ask a whole, an additional series of questions that can lead to an argument about a different and more modest national security posture that will be more affordable and still keep the country safe. That's Andrew Basevich. He's the author of The Limits of Power. He's also a professor of history and international relations at Boston University. Andrew Basevich, thank you so much for coming in. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. So I was watching the great Green Bay Packer game Saturday night, and at halftime, there was a presentation of colors. The honor guard was representing, we were told, the men and women in uniform who are protecting us in 177 countries around the world. And I yelled at the screen, 177 countries. 
As we celebrate the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr., that one fact tells you just how badly we failed to put into practice the vision of Dr. King. The fact that we have troops in 177 countries confirms that we're still a society gone mad on war, as Dr. King noted in his magnificent speech at Riverside Church on April 4, 1967, a year to the day before he was assassinated. The fact that we have troops in 177 countries confirms that we haven't had yet, as King urged us to have, the true revolution of values that will make us say of war, this way of settling our differences isn't just. The fact that we have troops in 177 countries, along with Bush's war in Iraq and Obama's war in Afghanistan, and the fact that the U.S. is supplying two-thirds of the global arms trade, confirms that we are still, as Dr. King said, the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. The fact that we have troops in 177 countries is nothing to celebrate on Martin Luther King Day. John le Carré. I spoke to him in London on Sunday. While he's famous for his spy novels, he wrote a widely read anti-war essay in 2003, just before the U.S. invasion of Iraq. It's called The United States of America Has Gone Mad. This is an excerpt. America has entered one of its periods of historical madness. But this is the worst I can remember. Worse than McCarthyism, worse than the Bay of Pigs, and in the long term, potentially more disastrous than the Vietnam War. The reaction to 9-11 is beyond anything Osama bin Laden could have hoped for in his nastiest dreams. As in McCarthy times, the freedoms that have made America the envy of the world are being systematically eroded. The combination of compliant US media and vested corporate interests is once more ensuring that a debate that should be ringing out in every town square is confined to the loftier columns of the East Coast press. The imminent war was planned years before bin Laden struck, but it was he who made it possible. Without bin Laden, the Bush junta would still be trying to explain such tricky matters as how it came to be elected in the first place, Enron, its shameless favoring of the already too rich, its reckless disregard for the world's poor, the ecology, and a raft of unilaterally abrogated international treaties. They might also have to be telling us why they support Israel in its continuing disregard for UN resolutions. But bin Laden conveniently swept all that under the carpet. The Bushies are riding high. Now 88% of Americans want the war, we are told. The US defense budget has been raised by another 60 billion to around 360 billion. A splendid new generation of nuclear weapons is in the pipeline so we can all breathe easy. Quite what war 88% of Americans think they are supporting is a lot less clear. A war for how long, please? At what cost in American lives? At what cost do the American taxpayers pocket? At what cost? Because most of those 88% are thoroughly decent and humane people in Iraqi lives. How Bush and his junta succeeded in deflecting America's anger from bin Laden to Saddam Hussein is one of the great public relations conjuring tricks of history, but they swung it. A recent poll tells us that one in two Americans now believes Saddam was responsible for the attack on the World Trade Center. But the American public is not merely being misled. It is being browbeaten and kept in a state of ignorance and fear. The carefully orchestrated neurosis should carry Bush and his fellow conspirators nicely into the next election. Those who are not with Mr. Bush 
are against him. Worse, they are the enemy. Which is odd because I'm dead against Bush. But I would love to see Saddam's downfall. Just not on Bush's terms and not by his methods. And not under the banner of such outrageous hypocrisy. The religious cant that will send American troops into battle is perhaps the most sickening aspect of this surreal war to be. Bush has an arm lock on God, and God has very particular political opinions. God appointed America to save the world in any way that suits America. God appointed Israel to be the nexus of America's Middle Eastern policy, and anyone who wants to mess with that idea is A, anti-Semitic, B, anti-American, C, with the enemy, and D, a terrorist. What is at stake is not an imminent military or terrorist threat, but the economic imperative of U.S. growth. What is at stake is America's need to demonstrate its military power to all of us, to Europe and Russia and China, and poor, mad little North Korea, as well as the Middle East, to show who rules America at home and who is to be ruled by America abroad. The most charitable interpretation of Tony Blair's part in all of this is that he believed that by riding the tiger, he could steer it. He can't. Instead, he gave it a phony legitimacy and a smooth voice. Now I fear the same tiger has him penned into a corner and he can't get out. It is utterly laughable that at a time when Blair has talked himself against the ropes, neither of Britain's opposition leaders can lay a glove on him. But that's Britain's tragedy, as it is America's, as our governments spin, lie, and lose their credibility the electorate simply shrugs and looks the other way. I cringe when I hear my Prime Minister lend his head prefect's sophistries to this colonialist adventure. His very real anxieties about terror are shared by all sane men. What he can't explain is how he reconciles a global assault on Al-Qaeda with a territorial assault on Iraq. We are in this war if it takes place, to secure the fig leaf of our special relationship, to grab our share of the oil pot, and because, after all, the public hand-holding in Washington and Camp David, Blair has to show up at the altar. But will we win, Daddy? Of course, child. It will all be over while you're still in bed. Why? because otherwise Mr. Bush's voters will get terribly impatient and may decide not to vote for him. But will people be killed, Daddy? Well, nobody you know, darling. Just foreign people. Can I watch it on television? Only if Mr. Bush says you can. And afterwards, will everything be normal again? Nobody will do anything horrid anymore? Hush, child, and go to sleep. Last Friday, a friend of mine in California drove to his local supermarket with a sticker on his car saying peace is also patriotic. It was gone by the time he'd finished shopping. Thanks for listening, everyone. And normally at this time, I would be thanking those of you who called into the voicemail line to leave messages to be played on the show. However, no one called in this time. It's very sad. Uh, not for me, but for you, the listeners. The listeners love to hear from other listeners. So if you have something to say and would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. Today, what I'm going to do is something that I've done before and encourage you guys to vote for the progressive slate of candidates to win real money for real progressive causes from a real giant 
evil corporation. And here's the breakdown of what it is. This is the Pepsi Refresh Challenge. Maybe you've heard of it. It's the, a promotional deal, uh, which is inconsequential. I uh, couldn't care less about Pepsi. I would encourage you not to drink it personally. Um, but they are actually giving away real money to real causes that uh, you and I care about. So what you can do is uh, vote for the progressive slate of organizations who have banded together to promote themselves and each other to help win money from Pepsi to uh, help their own causes. I've mentioned this before, uh, there are 10 organizations, many of them you will recognize, two of them I am intimately involved with. Uh, intimately is probably <laughs> probably too strong a term, uh, but, uh, but the Energy Action Coalition I have uh, worked with in the past, have personal friends uh, who work there. I will be attending the PowerShift conference that they are working to promote in April in Washington, D.C., and they are currently uh, in line to win $50,000 from this. So I encourage you to keep voting for them, to keep them in that top spot so they can win the money. And another organization that I maybe intimately is the right uh, term for these guys because I've just joined the New Leaders Council. And uh, I know that that sounds like I just joined a board of directors for some shadowy organization. That is not actually true at all. The New Leaders Council, uh, in as brief a way as I can explain, is kind of a bare bones organization that runs on uh, volunteer time, donated space, donated food, and you know, really stripped down kind of organization. Uh, so they don't waste a lot of money, is what I'm saying. Uh, but what they do and do very well is train young progressives, young professionals to go out and uh, you know give them the skills and the tools that they need to uh, best harness their own ability to make positive change in their lives, communities, country, world, and so on. And so this organization, I, I was lucky enough to be nominated to join a fellowship program. They have a fellow fellowship program in several cities across the country uh, every year. And so I was lucky enough to become a 2011 fellow for the Chicago chapter and uh, went to my first full weekend meeting with them uh, like today, yesterday and today. And so I can now report with firsthand knowledge that these guys really kind of kick ass. Um, as I said, they run primarily on you know volunteer power and, uh, and, and are really, really passionate about empowering people to be the best people and the best progressives that, that they can be to send them out into the world and become the next generation's leaders of progressives. So that's what they're all about. They are currently very, very close, but not exactly right at the top of the list to win $50,000 for themselves. So I strenuously would like to encourage you to go out and vote for them and of course all of the other members of the Progressive Slate. The way to do this, I've created a very simple link, bit.ly slash Progressive Slate. So the website itself, bit.ly slash Progressive Slate. It's just a way to shorten the link for you. And if you've tried to use that before and had a problem, uh, that was my fault. I accidentally created the link with case sensitive, you know, lettering. So I capitalized the P and the S in Progressive Slate. May have thrown some of you off. That is now fixed. So now it works either way. If you capitalize the words, if you don't, it all works. So please check that out because if you're going to do one thing and like pay attention to one of those emails that you get that's telling you to sign something or click here or show your support and you feel like you're signing a petition that goes off into the ether and doesn't get read or paid attention to by anyone, like I feel your pain. I really do. And But I'm telling you that this is different than those things. This These are like actual votes that actually get counted and real dollars get actually handed out to real progressives to do real work on the ground. Like it's much, much more tangible than, uh, you know, just about anything else out there that you can spend your time on, uh, you know, just clicking something to say that you supported without actually having to open up your own wallet. So again, the link for that bit.ly slash progressive slate, go forward with my blessing. That's about it. So I'm just going to thank a couple of members before I go. Leanne G signed up on December 6th. Wait. 
2009. So huge thanks to Lian G for signing up for a leftist membership, uh, paid for a full year in advance, and then it renewed in December. So she's uh, stuck stuck with the show for uh, for at least two years. Thanks uh, hugely to Leanne and Chris V signed up on May 12th, also as a leftist, but at the monthly uh, monthly uh, you know renewal rate. And so has been sticking with the show month after month. Huge thanks to Leanne and Chris uh, and all of the members, of course, who make the show possible. I couldn't do it without you guys. Everyone can support the show by telling everyone you know about it. Stay tuned into the show and help spread the word online by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm uh, so proud that the Facebook page is over 3,000 uh, you know, fans or likes or however it is you're supposed to uh, describe that uh, quantity now. And uh, so that's very exciting. For details on the show itself, links to all of the sources and all of the music used in this and every episode are always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Fine, fine, black and white. You took Burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who take you out in the open door This is not my life It's just a fire